everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joe Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me is Ramon Mazinga, host of the podcast, Passing Through with Ramon Mazinga, a fantastic show that interviews people of diverse backgrounds about all kinds of social, cultural, and yes, philosophical topics. Today, we'll be doing a crossover episode in which we'll interview each other about three topics, after which you can listen to the whole discussion here, or you can watch the discussion broken up into three videos on Ramon's channel. All right. Um, so, Ramon, for my listeners, you want to just kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, that's, a, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> um, hey, Joel, how are you? Um, I'm... Um I don't know how to define myself. I'm not sure there is a uh, label or a definition that will make it um, easy or short, at least. Um, I'm a little bit of everything, like a um, jack of all trades. Um, I've been traveling um, for a long while. I've been um, uh, living as a digital nomad for the past um, 15 years. Uh, and uh, my background is in the um, entertainment industry. Um, I work as a content creator and uh, marketing advisor and... I do so many other things in the meantime. So it's um, um, probably the easiest way to describe me is like I'm a creative random person. Like That's awesome, man. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of people that we like having on the show. And uh, that's what we like talking about, right? We believe that um, there's a place in the world for generalists, right? You know, not, not everybody should be just a person who does one thing, um, you know, and certainly... Um, I'm not that way, you know, I'm a musician and a painter and I, I work a day job and I do the podcast and all kinds of different stuff. So it's cool. Um, you told me a little bit about yourself and, and it sounds really neat and I'm, I'm really excited to dive into the topics. So, um, let's just start right off with the first one, um, which you sent over to me. So we'll try to straight off questions and we'll see where it goes. Um, so the first thing you wanted to talk about was, um, travel and the search for the unknown versus a uh, need for stability. Yes. So um, I'll start with the first question. Uh, what roles do you think nature and nurture play in searching for the unknown versus um, a human need for stability in their lives? Ah, beautiful question. Um, I think it's uh, very subjective. Um, Nurture, I think, has a stronger role compared to nature. I think humans nowadays are a little bit uh, detached from nature um, because of the lifestyle that uh, most of us um, live uh, in our daily routines. Um, I think the, the, the need for stability comes from... Um, <clears throat> some sort of um, primal um, instinct for um, need for safety. Um, and uh, people used to be, used to live on a nomadic style, um, lifestyle just because they were uh, following the seasons and um, avoiding predators and following the weather. And um, uh, um, farming is also like a factor. But uh, I, I wonder if even in... Um, prehistoric age uh, people were craving a um, stable um, lifestyle in terms of um, living in this like do you think people wanted to live in the same place but they were forced to be nomadic because they had to follow the seasons and all of that or or it was like a natural um, instinct that they had like they, they wanted to move that's a super interesting question right because um, you would think 
um, that the only reason people would have moved around in prehistoric time was, you know, either they were following a group of prey or, um, you know, something like that. Yeah. But sort of the migrational patterns of, of ancient humans are kind of, if you look at it, basically, as soon as you had legs, you were walking all over the earth, right? And some of those places are really inhospitable to life. <laughs> Deserts, mountains, you know, super cold places and that sort of thing. And you think there has to be an easier way to make a living. You know, you could pick some berries or eat some nuts or, eat, you know, find some rabbits in a nice temperate location. There's no reason to go into these snowy mountains or into these deserts. So, um, it's yeah, it's a real interesting question thinking about that. Why did ancient humans travel? Um, you know, was there a need for it or is there a want for it? And then when I think when you look at modern day travel, um, you know, again, the need for stability versus the unknown, right? Um, you know, wh why do modern humans travel? You know, um, that's a totally technology. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, I can, I can get on the internet and I can look at pictures of the Taj Mahal or the pyramids or something. And it's a, it's a pretty accurate graphical representation of what they are. And I don't have to get on a plane and go through the airport and then, walk around in the heat or whatever it is, right? So what is what is it about actually reaching out and experiencing that unknown um, rather than just sitting at, at, at home where I'm familiar in my nice, stable environment? You know, what is that that's causing me to, to kind of move on and travel, you know? And it's that nature versus nurture question, right? So the nature, human nature, is it to have that stability or reach out and do that unknown? And certainly it's some balance of the two. Um, but yeah, then how people are nurtured probably has a big role in that too, right? I think that some people, you can see they have that thirst for travel and they want to go out and they want to explore. And there's other people that are perfectly happy to live their day, you know, their lives day in and day out doing the same thing. So it's, it's kind of an interesting question like that. Um, do you want to go ahead and ask another one or? Um, yeah, I, I was thinking um, in terms of, like um, in uh, in the past, probably one of the reasons why people went off and um, inhabited um, lands that were like um, icy or deserts was because like there were tribes and they were all uh, fighting all the time. And so the, the dominant tribe would settle in the, in the nice place and all the other tribes, like the, the, the rejected ones, had to fi find another place where to live and where to settle. Um, but nowadays... The, 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 the could be like um, uh, the most similar thing I think is the same thing is happening but it's more um, there is a strong political connotation to it so there are countries where life is easier or uh, they're they more wealthy or they're more safe or uh, like where um, the health system is better and and it's not easy uh, the same way as it wasn't easy back then to just enter a new tribe and and live with them uh, because you were like the, the the foreigner or the, the alien. The same happens today, but in a more organized and systematic way. And um, and and that to me tells that it's part of uh, human nature to just um, travel because you have a need to make your life better, but at the same time to kick away people that you don't like <laughs> in a way, which yeah. which is pretty yeah. sad. Well, yeah, yeah. And it, it does totally make sense. And you'd see that in other primates as well, right? 
is um, you, you hit on the key word there and that's um, tribal, right? Human species, we're not independent. We don't, it's not like we're a tiger that walks around on our own and we're not a communal species either. We're not like ants or bees that live together in a harmonious whole. We're tribal, right? And so we have these small groups that we identify with, that we bond with, we travel with. And um, yeah, I think that you're right. It's, it's right in our nature um, to identify a territory as our own, to try to um, collect resources for ourselves and to exclude groups that don't fall into that category. And you can see it on a, a micro scale and a macro scale, right? I think you kind of addressed the macro one, which is um, countries' borders, right? You know, I, I live in the U.S., where we have Mexico to the south and that border is a huge deal, right? Because people on one side of it have opportunities and healthcare and these sorts of things and people on the other side don't. Um, but even within communities, you see it, um, you know, different people who live in the inner cities or versus people who live in the suburbs versus people who live in rural areas. Um, in America, anyways, you have highly different um, access to not just wealth, but healthcare and those sorts of things based off your, your geographical location. So certainly, um, you know, looking back into ancient history and, you know, I think that you hit the nail on the head there, probably very much the larger tribe, um, tribe who had a more advanced technology as far as weapons and things like that would probably, probably post up in those preferred locations. And then as things continue to expand, some of those other people would be pushed into the more desolate areas. How how do you feel about borders as a concept? In a perfect world, you wouldn't you wouldn't have them, right? You wouldn't need um, them, right? Right, you wouldn't need them. Um, but I think that, like we just talked about, human nature is tribalistic, yes. and I think that humans, in you know, we inhabit a very interesting spot as um, in highly intellectual species, right? Because we have the ability to self reflect. So tribalism is built into our nature, um, but at the same time, we have the ability to know that it's wrong and to try to do something about it. But it doesn't make fighting nature any easier, does it? So that's why borders still exist, even though most of us know that in a perfect world, they wouldn't be necessary. Yeah, exactly. In a perfect, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need them, but we don't live in a perfect world. As simple right. as that. Have you traveled yeah. much? Um, I've traveled a little bit. Um, I have been to Serbia, Hungary, Croatia, France, Germany. Um, I've been to Mexico and Canada, um, a few other places, um, and you know, all over the U.S. But that's that's about the extent of it. And what, How about you, you? I'm sure you've been a lot of places, right? Um, not really. Um, I've been traveling for a long time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I've been to many places because I have a romantic view of what travel is or should be, or at least like for me. And um, I think the way I've always been fascinated by how uh, travel worked in the how like the experience of travel was. Um, in the late eight, 1800s um, where mass tourism was not a thing and uh, it was some sort of like elite 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 uh, elitarian choice to, to travel like not 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 necessarily because of a uh, money factor uh, poor people were traveling as well it was just more like a choice because access to travel was not as easy mostly in terms of um, how fast 
can you travel? So now you can go from America to Australia in like half a day. But um, in, in the past, they used to, the case was that like if you want to travel to uh, overseas to a different country, um, to a different um, hemisphere, it it took like uh, weeks or months and and. And that is what I call travel, not reaching the destination, but everything that is in between from when you leave to when you get there. I personally don't care much for reaching the destination because to me, that's when the travel ends. So I, I like the process and I like discovering what happens in the middle. That's why I love traveling by land and I avoid as much as I can traveling um, flying. Um, I discovered that when I first uh, drove from Sicily to France and I used to go there always uh, flying, which took like, let's say two hours um, more or less. And then I drove for two days and I met all of these interesting people and I actually understood, uh, I had a clearer vision of what there was in between. Like when you fly, you just it's like getting on a... Um, underground tube, whatever, like you don't know what the city is like, but when you travel on a bus or a bicycle, like on, on the surface, then you have an understanding of the city. And this was kind of the same. Um, so I, I could experience everything in between all the cities, all the town, all the people and how uh, everything was changing slowly, but in a clear direction. And and to me, imagine that at, at, a, at a global scale, uh, that it was uh, what led to led me to, to travel um, internationally in the same way. So what I do is I go to a place, I try to stay there as long as possible or at least until I get bored. And I try to experience life as a local. So sometimes I try to study a language or at least I try to like um, blend in and uh, work in the place or in the, in the in that country, in that city or or, or settle for a little while and, and then start um, getting a network of people and friends. And, and, and that makes me feel... Um, accepted but at the same time it gives me an understanding of how those people live because my my way of traveling is more about understanding people rather than visiting i generally hardly ever go to museums and stuff like that like I, sometimes i do but um what fascinates me is the human experience right yeah and, and you know that's that's very profound on several levels um the the biggest one to me is that it's kind of a metaphor for um, thinking in general and philosophy, right? Um, I think that a lot of times, especially these days, people are focused on answers. And there was recently a study that came out that said people um, will form opinions on things that they have no previous experience with, with like under five seconds. They want to have an opinion about something they want to think they know about it. Yeah. Um, and philosophy, the whole idea of it is, in our show, we never... We never find any answers. Absolutely. Right? We never, when we're talking about God or knowledge or time, there's no answers to those questions, but it's the journey of it. It's, it's the, the probing of those things and, and thinking about them along the way and going through the process. That's the enjoyable part. Of it. If you do and, find um, answers, you're doing philosophy wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, so it, it's not, you know, physical travel is, is the same way. And like you said, um, when you're experiencing it the way that you do, um, that whole idea of borders, it's different from looking at a globe, right? You look at a globe and you have these clear cut things. But when you're living with the people, what you realize is that, oh, well, things aren't as different right here as they are five miles across the border 
you know, just because this is the separation between this country and that country, the, the people are much more complex than a label of where they live, you know? Exactly. That's why I don't think like what defines a person is like the GPS coordinates where they are, uh, they are born at. It, it doesn't make much sense to me as a concept. Like uh, yeah. I'm an Italian, I'm an American, I'm Australian. Like you're a person who happened to happens to be, uh, happens to live in a certain country or happen to be born in a certain country. It's not, it's not that that should be the defining factor of who you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, do you think that a need for um, homeostasis drives us one way or the other when it comes to searching for the unknown versus stability? Or do you think it's the conscious choice? Um, so, we kind of covered this a little bit, right? Um, we have this idea of an equilibrium, of things staying the same. And that sort of is human nature. We like to have that. Um But do you think that that's what drives these sorts of things? Or do you think that people make the conscious choice that I want to go explore something or I want to have a stable life? Or do you think it's something that's more in the background? Are we getting, in, getting into the free will uh, topic? Like people make conscious choices or uh, is that a thing even? Um, I don't know. Um, I think... Okay, my point of view is that all the decisions that we make, I'm, I'm going to be very controversial here. I don't believe in um, right and wrong or good and bad in general as concepts, uh, which is something that generally horrifies people. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I'm going to try to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, I think that every action taken by any person at any given moment is correct only under those exact uh, circumstances. So if right now I'm thinking a certain thing and a second after I think exactly the opposite, they were both the correct thought to have one before the other. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm, I still have the right to change my mind and change idea but that doesn't mean that what i was thinking for was wrong it's simply that that was correct back then and what i think now is correct now so all of this in my understanding depends on what my um, history has been until now all of my who i am my personality my actions everything is um, dictated by the experiences that i had and now how i've processed those experiences which depends on what opportunities i had during my life and how my intelligence has developed intelligence uh, i'm not talking about like uh, knowledge or um, education i'm talking about like how my brain works and intelligences are many different types there is a musical intelligence there is an like uh, mathematics there is a uh, literature there is uh, the ability of like uh, empathy is it, it it's a um, huge dwell uh, well anyway um um so basically each person lives Uh, their life in a different way from one another. Everyone has their own different um, experience and based on that, they make their decisions which are the best possible decisions for them at that point in their lives. Um, 
And if they start thinking that that's not the best thing for them, they can change their idea and move on. But when it gets to the point of making decisions, not everyone is able to understand if those decisions are um, influenced by everything that is an artificial construct around them. So um, social rules and um, sometimes you you do things just because you've been uh, taught that things works this way and this is the way to go. And you do that just because of um, habit. And some other people start uh, thinking uh, and and, um, what's the word? Um, trying to uh, trying to uh, trying to understand if what they're doing is actually uh the best possible uh action to take or if they're just doing it because they've been told so and i think that's the discriminating factor like wh- when you start thinking in an a- analytic way about everything literally everything and you stop giving everything for granted just question everything that's when you are able to do uh decisions that i don't know if this answers your questions i went like <laughs> it's just far off but uh yeah. <laughs> no i think that yeah it's great and um i think it's it's bleeding into our next topic a little bit we're getting there on time so um we'll, i'll try to uh we'll, we'll tie it in some but uh, no i think that you have a good point which is um you know, I, I was asking basically, um, searching for the unknown and exploring versus, you know, living a stable life. Um, if those are, you know, how they're influenced. And I think that you, you answered it pretty well, which is that, um, you know, if, if you live in un, an unreflected on life, right, if you're just going through life, I think you're going to tend towards um, wanting stability, wanting things to be remaining the same. If you're somebody who is um, analytical, you know, and you're doing a lot of self-reflection and you're wondering about some of these bigger questions, you know, what's the meaning of life? Why, why are we doing all this stuff? I think that you're, you're tending to be somebody who is going to, going to want to explore, going to want to search for the unknown and um, do those sorts of things. And that leads us right into our next topic, which was experiencing life over searching for meaning, right? Um, so do you think that one or the other requires more effort? Do you think it requires more effort to experience life or to search for meaning? I think most people try to do neither of those, which definitely requires less effort. It's like living on autopilot and letting life happen to you. But um, those two, I used to think of those as they were the same thing. And only recently I'm considering the possibility that they are actually two very opposite things. Because in in my opinion, uh, I mean, I came to the conclusion at some point in my life that experiencing things was in some way or form the answer to the question of what's the meaning of life. But it doesn't really make much sense. I think uh, now I've reconsidered and I think that they are like two possible, like you get to a fork and at some point you decide, uh, do I want to focus on experiencing things or do I want to focus on trying to find what is the meaning of all of this? all around us. And to answer to your question, I think probably 
it takes the same amount of energy, but it's it's different sort of energy. It really depends on who you are and and what your what drives you in life. Searching for a meaning to me is not probably the best option because I already know I'm not going to find the answer to that question like what's the meaning of life but experiencing things on the other hand um, gives me on the other end gives me an idea of how to take the most out of this experience where experience is life so um, that, that goes leans towards a Buddhist approach of life in a way where um, somebody once uh, explained it to me in a way that it was a metaphor with so the, the, okay I'll try to um, imagine how if everything in everything in life in life is made of um, energy like everything in the universe is made of um, energy matter so energy um, and imagine life being like a wave in the ocean so all the energy is all the water in the ocean but when when there is a wave only a tiny percentage of that water comes to life in a form that is imagine a human life as a wave so when this wave dies when this person dies all the energy all the water goes back to the ocean and gets mixed with all the rest of the energy and when a new wave comes up it's gonna have some percentage of like 0. 0.0000 something of what the previous wave was but the rest of all of that energy is going to be scattered all over the place and it's going to be part of something else. So if you accept this point of view uh, applied to uh, human lives and life, life, life in general, then it, it, it becomes obvious that we are all the same thing at the same time. So I'm you and the tree and the plant at, at the same time, the dog at the same time, because part of me... And part of my energy could have been something, anything living in any place or time at any given point in history. And at that point, you realize that your life that you're living now is just transient and it's something that is gone. It, it, uh, very unlikely, like it's still possible, but it's extremely unlikely that it's going to happen again because the possibility that like reincarnation in, in the... Um, strict sense it's really not probable from a statistical uh, point of view so my point uh, and my conclusion to all of this uh, speculation which is purely hypothetical is this wave this specific wave has only one goal and the best way to contribute to the experience that can be gathered by the rest of the ocean is to experience everything that this wave can experience and, and contribute as, at, at, at its maximum potential. So what I want to do with my life is to gather as much experiences as possible and learn from life because it's like um, going to the museum and you want to see everything in the museum, otherwise you miss out. Um, yeah, I think I oversimplified, uh, but... It's it's sort of the essence of life is experiencing things to me because 
there is nothing else that our beings are capable of doing better than experiencing like we are built to experiencing we have senses and um and they are meant to feel things yeah yeah so it's interesting um you know because i think when you're looking at it you have um there's two types of knowledge right you have a priori which is knowledge that you gain through thinking about things and then you have um a posteriori which is knowledge that you gain through experiencing things and um lots of times you can use both kinds of knowledge to get um to understand something you know um there's a there's an old uh, story that um socrates was trying to figure out how many hor- how many teeth a horse had in its head by thinking about it right what's well, not the best way to go about it the best way to go about it is go open the horse's mouth and count his teeth right so i think that um when it comes to experiencing life versus searching for meaning um you know, I think that there are, there are times to do each one. Um, and like you said, you know, being the experience of being a human being is all filtered through our senses. You know, we, we see and hear things and, and, and we experience things that way. And, um, you know, your, your analogy about the wave in the ocean, um, highlights the fact that, um, you know, some people have deep feelings about, um, religion and meaning. Um, but you know, there's a very good chance that we're, we're a very insignificant part of the universe. Um, so this idea, this idea of searching for meaning, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's individual. Some people will say that there's, that that's the best thing you can do is search for meaning. And some people say it's a waste of time. There is no meaning, right. But experiencing life, um, doesn't necessarily have to be hedonistic. You know, it's, it's not just saying, Oh, well we should just, um, you know, do whatever feels good until we die. Um, it, I think that the best way to go is probably, uh, edemonia, which is an ancient philosophical concept that said, you know, you shouldn't focus on just what makes you feel good. Um, but you, you know, you can't focus too much on what the meaning of life is. It's kind of like you said earlier, you just have to look at the context of where you are and you have to try to live the best life that you can, you know? So, um, Yes. Yeah, uh, and and so, I I, I want to add uh, when I say experiencing things, it's not from a um, hedonistic or like Epicurean um, sense um, perspective. It's more like experiencing literally anything. So I don't try to experience only the things that I like or that give the things that give me pleasure. I try to experience literally everything and what gives me pleasure in in a way is the fact that i know that my goal is experiencing things and being able to experience everything is what gives me pleasure so learning how to enjoy doing things that i normally wouldn't do in a way gives me pleasure as well because I'm overcoming that difficulty and I'm enabling myself to experience something that otherwise I wouldn't have. Um, which doesn't necessarily mean that like you 
need to start like injuring yourself like there is there is a clear boundary where like you it, it, it's more about like developing acquired uh tastes and learning how mm-hmm. to how, how how to do that which gives you a much broader spectrum and doesn't let you assume that certain things you like certain things you don't like it's more like something i know that i like and some other things i need to learn how to enjoy those yeah yeah exactly um you know the big one for me is is exercise right Yes. If I go on a really if I go on a really hard run, it might not necessarily be enjoyable. And as a matter of fact, I might not make it through it unless I really focused on what I'm experiencing. That that feeling of taking a deep breath, you know, trying to line up my breathing, just trying to look around at the scenery, you know, feeling what I'm feeling in my legs. All these things um like you said, is, is there meaning behind them? Maybe not necessarily, but the, the experience of, of feeling them is, is something that adds a qualitative um, benefit to life. And like you were saying, just the idea of th- the things that you like and don't like, right? If you start thinking about them deeply, okay, you like certain foods and you don't like others. Well, why? Why, why is that? And what you, what you realize is that in some cases, um, it really just has to do with mental blocks that you've put in place Absolutely. rather than the objective experience of what's happening, you know? Yeah, I'm glad that you agree with that because it's not a very common uh, point of view, especially with taste. People are really attached to what they like and what they don't like. And especially Italians, like you cannot talk food with Italians. It's it's a really sensitive topic. Uh, it's like, no, man, you should try that. And like, no, that's not how my grandma used to cook it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, no, I, I totally understand because I'm I'm just a strange person in general where like, I don't really think about food much, you know, like, I mean, uh, it's just, it's just not something that, you know, well, I, I eat because I have to. And yeah, sure. There's certain things that I, I like over other things. Um, but for the most part, I don't really think about it, you know, same thing with, with getting dressed, right? Like I've got three different colored t-shirts just because I've got more important things to think about in life. Right. I just want to be able to throw on a pair, a shirt and a pair of pants and have a match and go about my day rather than spend 15 or 20 minutes thinking about, you know, what I'm going to wear or that sort of thing. So it's kind of like you said before, um, earlier on, you know, does it require more energy to do one or the other? It doesn't really. Um, basically what it boils down to is everybody has a certain amount of cognitive energy and what they choose to spend it on is what they choose to spend it on. Right? Exactly. Unless they decide not to spend it, in which case that's the case when it, it requires less energy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that, that was an interesting point that you made as well, right? Which is, um, ex- you know, if you think about it, everybody's experiencing life, right? We all, you know, we have, most of us have some sort of sensory perception. We can see or we can hear, we can smell, we can taste, we can think. We all have the same faculties, um, but I think it's kind of our mind's filtering process, right? What things we're deciding to filter out versus what things we're choosing to examine um, and actually analyze. And, uh, you make a good point, which is that I think that especially with the world that we live in and, um, you know, the short attention spans and the social media and this sort of thing, I think that a lot of stuff just goes through people's filter, you know, and you're yeah. not, nobody's really taking the time to, to analyze or think about what their the experiences that they're having. Some people don't, um, acknowledge reality because it's not worth their time, I think, <laughs> or they think. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. 
that was one of the questions that I had that I, that we, you pretty much answered, which was, I was going to ask, do you think people have a hard time seeing the value in searching for meaning? And I think that the answer is yes. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, some people think, well, what, what's the point thinking about this stuff? And, um, you know, I think those are the people that are, um, to visit, revisit our earlier question. They're the people that are probably more interested in, in the destination than the journey. Right. Yeah. So which I just want to be somewhere, you know, mass but, tourism again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. How would you measure someone's success in ex experiencing life? Interesting. Um, well, su success is again subjective, but success in experiencing life. Um, because how do you experience su success in, in life first? Uh, to some people is money, to some people is like feeling accomplished or uh, not falling into depression or whatever. S success in experiencing life, I don't think there is a way to measure it. I, I never thought about measuring if I was being su successful at, at, at doing that, like I never questioned myself that. Thanks for this question. Um, yeah, well, I'll give you a couple hypotheticals, right? So, um, you know, well, let's say there's somebody who, um, you know, they, they want to search for the unknown. Um, they, want to, they want to experience life. They travel all over the world. They see all kinds of things. They meet all kinds of people, right? Um, then let's say there's somebody else and they live in the same town they were born in. And, you know, they do the same thing each day. Um, but let's say they both derive the same amount of pleasure out of life. Do you think one would be more successful than the other? Or would you say that it's basically individualistic? Absolutely individualistic. Um, I can answer with an analogy. Um, in relationships, it happened to me that I developed a much, much stronger attachment and connection um, with somebody who I knew for just like two days compared to somebody I've been together for um, three years. And this is kind of the same. Like it doesn't matter how uh, far and wide you travel or uh, how many new things you try. It, it, it's all about motivation and drive and also how it's about the how rather than the what it's about the approach you can live in your in your house your own life but every single action that you do you try to understand it deeper and deeper or you can travel and be a tourist and 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 have less experiences than that person living in his house in, in his own life Yeah, exactly. I think that that's, that's right on because it's, it's like we, like we were just talking about. You have a priori and a posteriori knowledge. Knowledge gained through thinking and knowledge gained through experiencing. And one isn't necessarily considered superior to the other. I think that the point is, is that you, you, have, you have gained some kind of insight, some kind of knowledge. You lived in such a way... Um, that you feel as if you've accomplished something, right? And so, you know, some people are physical explorers, physical adventurers. Some people are explorers or adventurers um, in their mind, philosophers, right? That sort of thing. Um, and some people, like you said, could travel all over the world and do all these different things and not actually ever really experience what they're doing, right? So... Humans are, are fascinating creatures because you have all of these complex interactions and, um, 
it's really very individualistic how the human experience and goes and and how they how they make meaning of it right so let's that'll segue us right into the last question which is understanding things beyond human comprehension right so is there a difference between science and philosophy when explaining things beyond human comprehension do you think i thought there was um and then it was brought to my attention that science and philosophy need to converge in order to allow each other to advance um because philosophy has some practical limitation and science has limitations that are uh, bound to what we already know so without philosophy without the ability of thinking critically and and hypothesize new theories science can't really science would know what to search for and on the other end without science philosophy cannot advance because it would everything would stale everything would become would would just stay an hypothesis but in order to build new hypotheses you need proven facts so you hypothesize um, you hypothesize something then you prove that to be right or wrong and you build a new hypothesis on the outcome of that research so they both work in a synergic way i think yeah. i believe yeah absolutely um you know philosophy is is the foundation of science yes. like you said so you know you you come up with a hypothesis um but like you said it's not enough to come up with hypotheses you have to go out and you have to test them um and then after you test them this is the thing that frustrates some people is that with science um people like to think that the science is the be all end all that it's that it's answers right um but really science is mostly in the business of disproving false things and setting up working frameworks for things but science really doesn't find many answers either science has always changed right we we've gone through the pandemic over the past year and a half right and uh you know a lot of anti-vaxxers and and conspiracy theorists say oh well look you know at first they were saying that you know it could spread through this and now they're saying they can't and then they're saying you should keep this much distance and now they're saying this and so the scientists don't know what they're talking about right well it's not that the scientists don't know what they're talking about it's that they're learning about it as it's happening and they're refining their frameworks so you know is are and if you look at cosmology right yeah. um that's been kind of the same way you d- we developed this whole idea of how what the universe looks like how it works and then repeatedly throughout the course of history we come to a point where we say oh this actually doesn't work and we have to tear it down and start over again um so that's the thing is you know people think of science as being an infallible thing but really all it is is a framework right you're just trying to disprove certain things and then after you disprove something develop something that that makes good predictions um and then once you develop something that makes good predictions the more you can refine it the more accurate it's going to be but you're never going to fully have answers so as a result you're always going to have philosophy beyond that once you can no longer have answers you're going to start making new hypotheses and making a new hypothesis um to me is inherently philosophical right 
because you can have all the data points, you can have all of the evidence, you can have all these things, but they don't really mean anything unless you uh, synthesize the information in your head and try to make meaning out of it. So what separates a philosophy from a conspiracy theory, do you think? Conspiracy theory is something that is believed to be true. A uh, philosophical um, idea or a theory is something that you think about, you speculate, and you, and you wonder if that could possibly be the case, but you don't assume anything, you don't give anything for granted, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I, I think that the key word there is, is the assumption, right? Um, philosophy does follow a rigorous process, right? So even though it's not science, you, we're not conducting experiments and doing those sorts of things. We are thinking about something, and then we're within the framework of logic trying to form thoughts about it. Um, whereas, like you said, conspiracy theories make a lot of assumptions about things. You know, rather than looking at what the most logical explanation is, or rather trying to find evidence that disproves something, you're more looking for the answers that you want to find, the things that you want to hear. Um, I think, I think conspiracy, cause conspiracy theories, they draw from a, an, a, like an ancestral need for, um, explanations and for, you need to, as a person, you need to make sense of what's happening around you. You need to have something or someone to blame to relieve stress and pressure from, from yourself and from your inability to understand what's going on. So in, in the past, like when the cavemen were seeing like uh, lightnings, they were going, oh, this must be the gods because like how else would you explain what's going on? And once you justify that, you're... you're mind goes at peace like this is something that i couldn't understand that it was bugging me so much and now that i finally have the solution it's it, it's a god it's a being living in the sky that throws this like uh, fiery whatever okay now i know what it is i can go to sleep like you know the mind goes to yeah. peace and the same is it's happening here like people simply don't know things and they need to cope and and they 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 find relief in in um, conspiracy theories because it's the easiest and most accessible way of coping with the unknown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I think that again, you know, going back to our our talk about nature versus nurture, I think that it's part of human nature um, to want to have the answers. Right? We have this ability to do this higher level thinking, and you know, and beyond that, you know, our sensory experience um, defines so much of what we consider reality, right? We know that there's yes. huge swaths, huge swaths of the, the light spectrum, right? There's ultraviolet light and infrared light that we can't see. Um, but since we can't see it, we don't really think about it existing, you know? Um, and I think it's it's just like you were saying, you know, if, if you see lightning and you don't understand the... Uh, you know, the climate processes that created it and, and all of the things that go into making lightning, you're not just going to sit there shocked. You're going to try to develop an answer in order to, in order to cope with the fact that you don't have that knowledge, right? Yes. And that's where the conspiracy theories sort of come in. 
Um, what's interesting about it is that, you know, understanding is, is a pretty fragile thing and comprehension isn't discrete either. There's, there's kind of levels of, of comprehending, right? So you and I are sitting here having this conversation and, um, we're both speaking English, but when I'm putting together a sentence, what I'm saying, um, I know exactly what I'm saying, formulating the words that are, that are coming out. But you might hear those same words and be interpreting what's being said differently, right? Absolutely. So, so the level of comprehension can be a little bit different. I think it's the same thing with a lot of scientific, um, scientific media, right? People people start reading about scientific uh, media, and especially over the past hundred years. You know, a couple hundred years ago, it was possible to know everything there was to know, and and to comprehend it on some level. Um, but, you know, really over the past 60, 100 years, um, science has gotten to such a point where scientists are having a hard time communicating to lay people what it is that they're discovering in a way that normal people can comprehend. And I think when the normal people can't comprehend the advanced things that, that are being discussed, that's when they start to doubt it and they start to come up with some of these conspiracy theories about pick your, you know, take your pick, right. Vaccines yeah. or, or climate or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Right. Um, so it's really wild. And, and, you know, human humans have a limited amount of computational power, right. Our brains can only handle so much information. And, uh, the fact of the matter is that there's just so much more to know out in nature than, uh, what we can, what we can make sense of. You hit um, um, the right note when you said, I really liked uh, that you picked up the topic of um, what defines reality has to do with our uh, sensorial perceptions, which is something that I've been discussing with um, in one of my uh, previous podcasts that I haven't released yet, but I, I will do in the uh, next uh, few weeks uh, about how reality is the product of the sum of all all of our um, sensorial perceptions, which means that it's potentially different for everyone. But at the same time, it is for sure completely different from um, for creatures who have different senses. Like if you think about bats, they have um, ultrasounds. And if you think about like um, platypuses, they have like uh, infrared abilities or something like that. So to them, the same world where we live in my, my, must feel and look completely different because we have different different senses and th this makes me rethink and redefine the concept of what reality is entirely because it's extremely it, it becomes uh, subjective um by any mean and and th this connects what the other thing that you said about communication like we already struggle at understanding each other when we speak the same language and when we use the same words because the meaning that we give to each word is um it's it's established uh, as a norm but it's also arbitrary so uh, the same word to me could have a different nuance or a different meaning than it has to you and uh, i was having this conversation with another guy um about the potential in the future for um, human AI integration in the sense that we might be able to start using devices with our brain. Uh, there's a lot of projects that aim to uh, achieve that in the 
very far future, I want to say. Um, and to the point that when you when you are able to send a text message to another person with your mind, because you can control your cell phone with your brain, at that point, we become virtually uh, telepathic, right? But at some point, you're not going to need the phone anymore because technology is going to advance to the point that like everything is going to be built in, sort of. And anyway, by that point, what use uh, humans would have for um, spoken words? Like, if you can, if we can communicate just with our thoughts, why would we need to talk out loud? And once we don't need to talk out loud, then in a large um, time scale, I think we would lose the need for words themselves. Because concepts are not the words. If we can communicate concepts without using the words, we just skip the middleman. And um, Dean Rickle, this um, scientist that I was talking to, he pointed out to me that we always going to need words. That was his um, point of view, because words are what we use to translate the mess that is in our brain and how we process things. It's not necessarily the same. So a concept, how a concept is born in my brain and then translated into a word, that the first part that happens in the subconscious could be completely different. So the mess that to me means uh, cow, for you, it could mean something completely different or be simply incomprehensible. Um, do you think we always gonna need, like, what do you feel about words in general? As a, Are they the most efficient way of communicating? Uh, no, I don't think so at all. Um, especially when you have as many languages as humans have, right? Um, the fascinating thing about words is that they're attempting to capture um, a certain experience or a certain kind of knowledge um, and you're trying to encapsulate it in something that is completely abstract, right? Why does the word tree represent a tree? And moreover, to what point does it, right? When, when I say a tree, well, how, how small can a tree be before it's a bush? Or, yes. you know, how, you know, what, what does it have to look like? You know, so again, when I say it, it might mean something completely different from what somebody else says. So language, no, language is, um, I think it's, I think it's a very inefficient way of expressing thoughts. Um, but I do see us, you know, outside of a large technological advance, have a hard time seeing us getting away from it. Um, for that reason, um, you know, that's just how we communicate, but at the same time, some of it is kind of happening. You know, there's been studies done that have shown that since the 1950s, um, you know, back in the 1950s, we had about a 50 to 60,000 word vocabulary. And nowadays it's about 5,000. So you, you, we've lost about 90% of our words um, as they've fallen out of style or, or this sort of thing. Or, or maybe it's that we're finding new ways to express them through technology, right? Yes. If we have 
we have so much, um, so many ways of visually representing what we're trying to do, or so many ways of, you know, there's there's so many different ways of communicating emojis. Um, that that, yeah, yeah, exactly. That that some of these words are they no longer seem necessary. But um, I mean, I, I think really what it comes down to when you're trying to understand things beyond human comprehension, what it boils down to is that consciousness and knowledge and meaning. These are all things that are beyond human comprehension. Absolutely. We don't know how, yes. we, we don't know how people are conscious. Um, we don't know if you actually can know anything at all. Um, like we talked about earlier, we don't know if there is a meaning to life. So I think that um, that's the thing is once you start um, philosophically examining things, it's sort of a humbling experience because um people like to think that they have answers. And what you find out is that, man, I really don't know anything at all. I don't know much of any of it, right? Yes. Only thing I so, know is that I know nothing. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> let's, um, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here. I have one last question for you. And it's kind of a fun one, but we're talking about understanding things beyond human comprehension, right? Yeah. Do you believe in aliens? Ah, I believe in the possibility, uh, for sure. Um, I like to claim very often that I'm not from this planet, but I'm not gonna go in that direction. Um, now, I think, I think, okay, from a scientific standpoint, has been proven that there are multiple planets within our reach of like. Uh, we know that they exist that have um, conditions that would that would allow human life to exist. So this is as far as we know. Like we don't know if there are aliens out there, at least not publicly. Um, but we know that those conditions for um, human life forms to exist in other planets um, exist. I wonder, going back to reality is a byproduct of our perception if life could express itself in a shape or form that we are not able to perceive and living creatures alien or even on the planet on our planet could exist or coexist without us not knowing but without us being able to sense it, being able to to perceive it, um, probably not. This is again very unlikely from a statistical standpoint, but there is nothing that disproves it either. And the short answer to the whole question is, on the other end of the spectrum, yes, it's very likely that uh, extraterrestrial creatures do exist. But when or how or why we should have an encounter with them, it's completely <laughs> unpredictable. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a fascinating question, right? And it's it's become pretty popular recently um, as you know, U.S. fighter pilots have released videos of unidentified flying objects and that sort of thing, right? Um, and but again, that's been happening kind of, for ages. Like, if you think about like right, uh, the right. Loch Ness monster and the sighting and the pictures that like, allegedly were taken yeah. back then. 
Yeah. And the thing with unidentified flying objects, right, is um, we're right back to like the prehistoric people seeing lightning, right? Yes. And so when they can't explain it, they're coming up with this story for it. And people are doing the same thing with UFOs when there's a very good chance that there's another reasonable explanation, right? Um, my, my grandfather worked at um, Kodak in Rochester. And in the 1950s, he was working for the Department of Defense on a camera for a satellite that had a three-inch resolution Okay. from, from space, right? Wow. This is in the 1950s. And it didn't become declassified until, I want to say, 2006. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, in other words, the U.S. government had, and in the 1950s, you got to think about Sputnik. The very first satellite wasn't launched until 1957. Wow. So, there weren't even satellites in space yet, and they were already developing these cameras to use in space. So, I think that governments have, are light years ahead of where the average person knows that they are. So I think that some of these things, and like Area 51, right? People like to think aliens crash there. I've been there. But the ac- the actual I mean, base in Raz, The Vanda oh, Desert. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the actual base is where the Air Force tests experimental aircraft. So wouldn't you say that there's just a good chance that the Air Force has a very advanced aircraft that crashed and they don't want their enemies to know that they have the advanced aircraft. So when somebody says it's aliens, they say, well, we're not going to say anything about it, right? Because we don't want anybody to look into it any further. Um, so I think some things have explanations like that. Um, but then looking at the, the concept of aliens objectively from a philosophical standpoint, I think that's probably very likely there's alien life form at the very least in the um, way of bacterial or uh, microbiotic organisms, right? It seems almost um, impossible that that doesn't exist. Advanced life forms, um, you know, there's been various ways that scientists have run the Drake equation, right? Trying to figure out how many stars, how many planets, how many things, how many possible Earths there are. And if you have an earth, then you could have an intelligent civilization, but there's still a lot of things that have to go right in order for that to happen, you know? So basically what you're counting on is how many of those factors you have versus how big and expansive the universe is, you know? And, but I think the other factor on top of that, that a lot of people who think we've been visited by aliens don't take into consideration is, um, time, right? So even if you did have these intelligent civilizations, right, the closest star to us is four light years away, meaning it takes light, the fastest thing that we know of, four years to get here. Any spaceship you could possibly make is going to take 30, 40 years to get here. Um, So if there's civilizations that are out there, if they visited us, they must be an extremely long-lived species, right? And that's highly unlikely. Like you said, statistically, it's, just a, it's not making much sense. Um, and I think that the last sort of um, part of the, the conversation would be looking at um, reality in a multiverse format, right? So we've talked about how 
we have a limited sensory capacity, right? We only see a little bit of the light spectrum. We only see a little bit of these things. Well, you know, there's scientific explanations that say that there's a multiverse out there in layers of, of brains, right? And that basically there's different versions of you that exist everywhere. And theoretically, at the quantum level, all possible versions of you are existing at the same time in the same reality. But like Schrodinger's cat, you don't know which version of you is going to exist in reality until the moment arrives. So if you look at it that way, it's kind of like, well, there are other things around if you sort of go into that, that kind of, of frame. So it's, it's an interesting question. And, um, you know, I was, I was mostly throwing it out there as a joke, but like anything, you can look at anything philosophically and try to say, well, if I pick this apart, you know, what sort of things about it make sense and what sort of things about it seem a little bit far-fetched, you know? Another way to think about the same thing is that uh, time doesn't exist and what only exists is the present moment. Because if you think about time, like everything that happened is... It, it doesn't exist anymore. And everything that um, has yet to happen, it doesn't exist yet. So everything, the only thing that is actually real is the each specific moment, moment by moment. So if you think about reality in those terms, there is no time. There is only a present moment and it's constantly changing, which is, which reminds me as well as, uh, which reminds me the, the, um, what you just said about uh, the Schrodinger cat, like it, it, it only happens when, when it happens, like w- when you, when you check on it, when, when, when you experience it in a way, but everything else still exists simultaneously, but it's only potential. And then in this dimension, right. in this reality, only one specific instance happens and the rest is going to happen eventually or it, it simply it doesn't because like, you know, it, not in our reality, not in our dimension, but this, th- there is a lot of uh, Rick and Morty in there as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole idea of quantum potentiality is, is a really fascinating um, idea. And, you know, and like you said, time is really um, just a different way of expressing certain things, right? Like having a multiverse where you have, an infinite amount of universes, each one with any possible combination. The difference between that and having an infinite, one single infinite universe, there's really no difference if you zoom out far enough and take time out of the equation. Because if you have one universe that's infinite in size, if you travel long enough in any direction, you'll come across every single possible possibility anything right yes. if, if, if it's truly infinite you will come across every possible thing and so having an infinite number of universes where any possible thing is happening it's just a different way of expressing the same thing you know so it's wild it, it's sort of mind-bending yeah but uh infinite as a hey, concept uh, is also very hard to 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 grasp for a human mind because like we are finite beings and accepting infinite as a concept is it's it's really um challenging yeah do you do you think anything infinite actually exists or do you think that that's just sort of a mathematical concept in human understanding from a like um 
pragmatic, like um, real material standpoint, I I don't know how to picture something infinite in my mind, but I do understand the mathematics behind it. It's just that physically I cannot conceive it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist because there are so many other things that I cannot appreciate, but that I do, that I do know that they exist like, um, infrared or UV light or whatever, like things that I cannot sense, but their existence is being proven. So infinite might be just the same, just exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's, you know, I, I don't have the scientific knowledge to, to know one way or the other, but, but, um, I know there's some scientists that say anytime you see an infinity in math, it's just the scientist way of saying we don't know anymore at this point, you know, yes. and that's kind of where philosophy begins in mathematics. But, you know, that, that idea of could something exist infinitely? Could the universe be infinite or could there be an infinite number of universes? That sort of thing. Um, it's just a fascinating question. And I, I think that that's it's why philosophy exists. The, the observable universe is riches to like we don't know, um, we cannot see the whole universe. We can only observe like until a certain point. And there is nothing that tells us that like just half a meter after that, it just ends. Like that's, that is a possibility. We just don't know. And since we yeah. get to see more and more over and over again, we just assume that it's never going to end, which is more likely than there is an edge or a border or anything, uh, or it, yeah. it just ends. But again, no way of knowing yet. Yeah. So, um, you know, until we have more information, we'll keep speculating about it. Absolutely. Hey, Ramon, it was great to have you on the show. It was a fantastic conversation. Until next time, keep pondering.